How are y'all doing? Good. Good. Uh, tonight, I'm not singing, so don't worry. Don't, don't be nervous. It's, it's okay. Um, we're going to start off with our prayer time. Uh, one of the things that, that we're emphasizing here at First Baptist Lugerville is prayer, and so we're going to start some time with that. And so I want to read a, a passage of Scripture, and you all will know this. Acts 8.1 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you've heard pastors take that and say, okay, that's home, and that's the state, and that's the nation, and the world for, for us. And so we're going to look at that a little bit tonight, kind of put that into our table groups as we go into our prayer time. And so the first thing I want us to think about and to pray about is the con continued unity in our church for here, First Lugerville, but then also the unity in the church universal, all of those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that we would come together, that we would be a witness, that we would be ready for when God brings the next revival, that we're ready to do that. So if you would, in your groups, just at your table, if you want to team up with another table, that's fine. We're just going to spend a few minutes praying on several things. And as we go through, I'll just mention those and you can just just continue praying for that. If you want to pray out loud, that's great. If you want to pray silently with your group, that's fine. Well, however you want to do that. So we'll start with prayer. And I'm going to start, and then I, when I stop praying, it's your turn, and we're going to pray for the unity in the church. Dear God, thank you so much for this church and the life that it's been in this community for so long. But I thank you for uh, the last two and a half months that I've been here and just what I've seen, the love that these people have for each other and for you and for their community. And Father, I just pray that that unity will continue. As we continue praying, pray for open doors for us to be able to share the gospel, whether at school or at home or in the neighborhood. We pray for the new school year, our students and all of our teachers, particularly the ones that you know by name, lift their name up right now. Now, if you would, pray for our city and our city leaders.
for our state and our state leaders. For our nation and our nation leaders. than our world and our world leaders. Let's shift our focus from asking and petition to praise and thanksgiving for what God has done in your life. There may be healings or jobs or finances or guidance or just thanksgiving for him being with you in difficult times. In Psalms 23, 4, it says, Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Father, we are so thankful that you are with us every step of the way, in the good times and the bad, that you give guidance, that you help uh, in all situations. There's so many times that we cannot see your hand moving, but Father, we can trust your heart in everything that you do in our lives. And Father, we are so thankful for that. Thank you for this church who is a praying church who wants to be before you, lifting up requests, praising you for who you are, thanking you for all that you've done in our lives. Father, we just ask that we continue to see how great you are and that we uh, will never try to put you in a small Sunday box, but we will let you just shine who you are, be as big as who you are, even though we can't fathom what that looks like. But Father, that we would just continue to learn and to grow about who you are and what you're doing in this world. And Father, that, that we'll just be a part of that that will look to you, that will trust your word as we read your word, as we study your word each week, that we will just continue to grow in our faith and that people that we see each and every day will look at us and know that we're different because we follow you, because of the love that we have for the world. Father, we thank you again for this evening. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm not mic'd up yet. I have to. should have done this earlier. Uh, I am filling in for Wes tonight, and we're going to have some fun. So, let me get this thing going here. Wes has got a, is the mic working now? We working? We got juice? We got juice. Okay. There we go. Um, have you guys ever studied a scripture passage and then gone, wow, I actually learned something new? Hey. Honestly, it, it, you've been studying the Bible long enough 
those moments become rare. And when you do have them, it's really kind of cool. I'm going to put this here before I drop my sunglasses somewhere. Um, and so we're going to look at the story of David taking a census. I've never actually done a really deep dive on this passage before. I've taught it on a sort of surface level to middle school students before, uh, years and years and years ago, but I've never done a deep dive into it. And I thought, okay, Wes has kind of gotten through the life of Solomon and his sort of stories through Scripture. I thought, why don't I zero in on a story that's pretty significant, helps us understand David a little bit more, but also has, ties into the broader narratives of Scripture itself, because it has a lot of implications for us. Now, this is going to be a pretty interactive night. I'm going to ask questions, and I want you to be bold enough to raise your hand and maybe ask them. Now, I will repeat your answer so that people, like, we record this. And so those will, you know, who are, you know, maybe not hearing it on the live stream or uh, the recording itself or later listening, they'll have some kind of idea of what's kind of going on. So um, uh, tonight we want some interaction, okay? Now, there's going to be some furious pen writing as well, again, some blanks in your notes. Uh, I like to take, take notes and, you know, blanks sometimes help me focus. And you also see there's some little QR codes here as well. Um, in my studies, I came across a couple of resources. I thought, hey, if y'all want to check it out later, you can go check it out. This first one is a great video put out by the same people that do the Bible app. And it just does a great recap of the last four chapters of Samuel, Second Samuel, and kind of has some really good application out of it. And the second QR code you see on the back it's a good apologetics article explaining one of the things we're going to tackle today. So this story of David taking the census is a re really unique passage because we have two parallel passages. We have one in Samuel chapter 24, 2 Samuel chapter 24, and then also in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. What you're going to need to do today is flip back and forth very frequently between these two passages. I'm going to probably look at a, a couple other passages as we go along, but this is going to be a main source text this morning. So you see I've got several different bookmarks in here, and uh, you're going to probably want to have, if you need to tear off a little piece of your notes and stick it in there, go for it, whatever's easiest for you, but have your Bible, your phone open to 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, because we're going to flip back and forth pretty frequently. All right, so let's jump into it. And part of the reason why I find this passage really interesting is that because there are parallel accounts, one account says something that the other doesn't say. One gives a little more details than the other do. But they both complement each other, and, and they're very helpful. But if you read just one by itself, it gets confusing. And it's confusing to read them both at the same time, but once you kind of hash it through and follow through, then it starts to make sense. And we'll kind of tackle the different things in that today. So go ahead. You got the Bibles open. I'm going to open mine. That might be a good idea. To see which bookmark is which here. All right. We're going to look at first, 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. We're going to compare it to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. So 2 Samuel chapter 24. I don't need that. And here we go. Verse 1. It says this The Lord's anger burned against Israel again. And he stirred up David against them to say, Go count the people of Israel and Judah. Now you might read that passage and go, okay, um, I have questions. I, I have like all the questions. Like it seems like God is tempting David. Like it stirs him up. And it almost like reminds you of the whole, you know, it's vastly different. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Um, it, it's very confusing. And we're also not given any context in this passage. Why is the Lord's anger burning against Israel? That's one of the, the initial questions that we have. And so if we look at just this account, it gets really confusing. Well, if we turn and go to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, the, the parallel account, and read that, it starts to make a little more sense. So we look at uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. It says this, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. These are two vastly different explanations, but at the same time, they complement each other. So how can these both be true at the same time? Well, first of all, who's in charge of Satan? God is, right? Think of the story of Job, right? Who does Satan go to to ask for permission to mess with Job? God, right? And the same word is used here for Satan, the, the Satan, which means adversary. 
Okay? And so Satan goes to David, and there's a crack in the door of temptation, and he exploits it. Okay? And, and so the, the language that's used in, second, in First Chronicles is the idea that David was tempted, that Satan tempted him, that Satan exploited a weakness in Israel and in David to really get him to do the census, whereas the second Samuel passage, it really sounds like God did it. Okay? What this really is showing us is that God has given Satan a leash to do this, a longer leash. And so the, the, the passage in Chronicles really helps us understand this. But why is the Lord's anger burning against Israel? We're not giving any context into this. So these are the two key questions we have to sort of, initial questions we have to answer is, why did God's anger burn against Israel? Those are the first couple blanks we have there. Why did God's anger burn against Israel? And two, why was the census tempting for David? If Satan is going to tempt him, why was this a, a crack in the door for David? Why was this a weak spot in his armor for Satan to exploit? What was so tempting about this? So part of the, the challenge in this is the way that 2 Samuel is structured the last four chapters. Okay? It's not entirely chronological. The last four chapters are kind of taking stories out, and there's not real given a whole lot of context to them in what order they go to, so it's pretty confusing. So 2 Samuel 21 through 24 are not in chronological order. They're sort of separate stories. They don't follow each other. We think, there are some people that actually think the last four chapters of 2 Samuel are actually chiastic in nature, where they've organized these structures and themes to emphasize a particular idea, much like Hebrew parallel poetry. Uh, other examples where you see chiastic structure in Hebrew poetry, they think they've organized these things in such a way. And so, whether it's true or not, we don't know 100% certain, but we do know that Samuel chose these last four chapters of, of, um, of Samuel to really emphasize these, to end in a particular way, to make the case that while David's not perfect, he is the ideal king. Okay, That's in your notes too. While David isn't perfect, he includes the ugly parts, right? He allows the story of the census to be there for David's failure to be out in the open, but he still shows, as we see, his repentance and his way he deals with it. And so um, this is the way it's kind of structured that way. Now, what's also confusing about this, now when I first started to study this, I looked at, if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 20, there is really a pretty interesting... I'm trying to see if I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, no, I am not. Okay, so if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 20, it says the capture of the city of Rabbah. The capture of the city of Rabbah. Now, this is a, a siege in which David stayed home. Look at verse 1. It says, In the spring when kings marched out to war, Joab led the army and destroyed the Ammonites. So in the spring when kings marched to war, Joab led the army. It says that David stayed home. Now, why does that sound familiar? Anyone? Why does that context in that story sound familiar? Thomas? 2 Samuel 11, in which what happened? Bathsheba, right? David stayed home, and that's when the Bathsheba incident happened, okay? And so we have this massive, massive gap in the book of Chronicles. It goes from this story to the Philistine giants in verse 4, and then right after that, David takes the census. So between verse 3 and verse 4, there's about 15 to 16 years of history that's not accounted for. The chronicler, which may be Ezra, we don't know for sure, but the language of Chronicles really feels very similar to, um, to uh, Ezra and also Nehemiah. In fact, the ending of Second Chronicles has a similar phrase that is repeated in the beginning of um, Ezra chapter 1, I believe, and which was also kind of a way of indicating to the scribes to kind of put these books together, sort of a between-the-seams kind of thing. So most likely it was Ezra that wrote the book of Chronicles, but he admits it. We don't know why, but there was a reason for it, right? He's trying to tell something about David. And part of the reason for the book of Chronicles was written you know, post-exile. Post like, let's learn from our history. This is what a good king of Israel was, and this is what a bad king was. And so he may have omitted some of the, all the extra David stuff <laughs> to really highlight his better qualities for a particular reason, so there's a little more contrast there. Um, but you can ask God up there when you go to heaven one day 
why exactly that is. So, but he omits all the David family drama. And so if you were just to read this without looking at the, uh, without looking at 2 Samuel, maybe doing a little bit of homework, you think, okay, this census takes place right after the Philistines and right after the Bathsheba event. But it's not the case at all. There's 15 years between the Bathsheba incident and the Philistine giants being defeated. So the event that's leading right up to the military census is this issue with David actually almost loses to these, these giants, these descendants, not descendants, really relatives of Goliath. And his men have to be the one to defeat him. It says that, I think in the Second Samuel version, that he was exhausted. If you look at Second Samuel 21, verse 15, the Philistines again waged war with Israel. David went down with the soldiers and they fought the Philistines, but David became exhausted. You know, he's, he's been fighting a long time and it's starting to have its toll on him. And so this is the key story that happens right before the census takes place. And so if you want a kind of an idea of the actual timeline, you can see that box there. Now, there may be some discrepancy in dates. Different people construct timelines in different ways, and depending on the data, there may be about 50 years difference, give or take. And, but this will give you a general idea of sort of the key events that happen, um, and then the 15-year gap, and then all of a sudden, boom, David was almost killed by the relatives of Goliath. Best men finish him off. Then we have the deal with the census. So, why did God's anger burn against Israel? Well, what are the main stories that are happening right before the Philistine attack? That's not listed in 1 Chronicles. Well, there's a whole series of rebellions of the Israelites against David. His own son, Absalom, takes, you know, basically would stand at the city gates and would validate everyone's complaints against David, his own son, and eventually created enough favor to take over Jerusalem. And David wanted to keep the peace, not want to start a civil war, left Jerusalem, for, I think, for about four or five years and, and it let his son rule. And then some things went south. And, you know, you can read that for yourself. And then there's a, the rebellion from Sheba as well, the Sheba revolt. So all these different people revolting against David. And it's not just like he's some politician, right? I mean, David was anointed by God. He's God's anointed man to rule them. Like God himself chose him. It wasn't like, hey, he descended from this guy, descended from this guy. No, God himself handpicked him, anointed him, said, this is my man to rule you, and yet you revolted against him. Now, we don't know for sure, but if we're going to go through this chronologically, it's a good inference that the reason why God's anger is burning against the Israelites could be because of these revolts against his anointed one. Much like how when the people revolt against Moses, his anointed one, God would punish them with a plague, right? He would give them like, hey, this is my anointed one. When you rebel against him, you are rebelling against me. There's a direct correlation. And so while we don't know for certain because Scripture doesn't tell us that explicitly, it's a pretty good inference that this may be why God is really um, burning against Israel for this. So... Um, so the answer is that, that perhaps could be a good answer to that question. Why was the census tempting for David? Well, let's think about this. We, the typical answer for this is it's just pride. He wanted to know how strong his army was, how good his country was, how great he was. Well, what happened right before this event? I mean, he faced up against a giant, but this time he, he's, not the, he's not the hero. Like, he loses. Like, he almost dies attacking this guy, and it's his men that have to step up and take care of it. And so... That's the story that comes right before this. I think David might be feeling a little vulnerable. Just a little bit. And you think, okay, I can't cut it in the battlefield anymore. And I'm not going to be ruling forever. There'll be a day when I'm not here. I'd like to know how strong my country is. I'd like to know for sure. Now, we're going to look at why this is wrong to do. But it helps us understand sort of the insecure place that David was in, perhaps. And the thing was, there was no need for a census. He didn't need to take a census. There's no reason to raise taxes, no reason to raise an army. They were pretty secure at this point. And so it purely came from David. And as we look at the passage, we'll see that even Joab was like, hey, this is not a good idea. So let's go ahead and flip our, our notes over. We're going to start reading through this passage a little bit. Let's start by reading 1 Chronicles 21. 7, 2 through 7. Let's see, get to the Chronicles passage. All right, here we go. 
First Chronicles chapter 21, 2 through 7. So David said to Joab, the commanders of the troops, go and count Israel from Beersheba down to Dan and bring a report to me so I can know their number. Joab replied, may the Lord multiply the number of his people a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, aren't they all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? I mean, even Joab knows from the gate is you shouldn't be doing this. And he tries to almost flatter David, like, hey, many more, many more people and troops in Israel. He's going to increase them. That's great. You know, sort of trying to build them up a little bit, you know, trying to pump them up. And doesn't seem to work. Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab. So Joab left and traveled throughout Israel and returned to Jerusalem. Joab gave the total troop registration to David. Uh, to David, In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 armed men, and in Judah, 470,000 armed men. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin. Actually, we're going to stop there. Now, if you want to flip over real quick to 2 Samuel 24, verse 9, you'll see that there's a bit of a discrepancy in the numbers. So chapter 24, verse 9, see, and it says this, Joab gave the king the total of the registration of the troops. There were 800,000 valiant armed men from Israel and 500,000 from the men of Judah. So 800 is a big difference between you know, 11, 1 million, 100,000, right? So where is that discrepancy happening? So you'll see the difference, there's a little difference in the language in 2 Samuel. He uses the word valiant. 1,000 valiant armed men, whereas in 1 Chronicles, it doesn't give this distinction. What some people believe and think is that the way they're sort of counting in this regard were the armed men, the people who could actually fight like mighty men, but there's about 300 more that could be recruits, guys that could fight that maybe haven't been trained yet. And then you look at the difference here, it's 500,000 from Judah, whereas in 1 Chronicles it says 470,000. Some say, well, maybe it's just rounding up. Okay, it's only a difference of 6%. But um, other people think, well, that could be the tribe of Benjamin that was not counted. Because it says that he was not going to count the tribe of Benjamin. So in one case, they may have counted it. In another case, they may have not included it. The tribe of Benjamin was really, really tiny. So, um, yeah. Thomas, you look like you have a question, man. This is interactive. So say it real loud and I'll repeat it. Oh, I was just um, possibly the rounding uh, was uh, due to the fact that Chronicles was written a lot later. That's possible. Well, they would have had first. They would have had Samuel as a source text. Actually, some people think that, yeah, they probably would have had second, first, and second Samuel as a source text. Um, we don't know for sure, but you know, whether it's rounding or not, just to simplify it. I mean, we're not talking about a gross negligence in counting. You know, most likely though, the difference was the the Benjamites not being included because for whatever reason. Yeah. All right. So, and if you want to know more, like a deep dive on that, there's a great, that QR code there will explain that a little bit more. Tammy, you got a question. Go. Okay. I think I understand why the Levites would not be numbered, but why not the Well, Joab gives a reason. So Tammy asked the question, why were the Benjamites not included in it? And, you know, Joab doesn't give a particular reason for it. It may have been not to bring shame on them or to include them in this or I don't know. I Get on the Googles and do some research for yourself. <laughs> I did a deep dive on this. I tried not to chase too many rabbit trails. Um, that would have been one maybe I could have chased, but I, I didn't get to it. So that's a great question, Tammy. Why did he not include uh, the tribe of Benjamin? And it may, have been, it may have been because that's where David came from. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. So that may have had something to do with it. All right, let's continue reading. So we need to tackle the question, though, why was this a sin against God? Why was taking a census a sin against God? You think, okay, if he's the chief shepherd, why not know his flock? Why not know how many you have? You're going to take care of things. In our country, we take a census, right? What's so bad about taking a census? Well, let's look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 16. Exodus chapter 30, verse 16. Exodus chapter 30, verse 16. Uh, sorry, verse 30 through, uh, Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 through 16. Let's see, that back clock, right? Yeah, let's hope so. All right, verse 11. And then God gives some instructions for a census. The Lord spoke to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to register them, each of the men must pay a ransom for his life to the Lord as they are registered. Uh, 
as they are registered. Then no plague will come on them as they are registered. Everyone who is registered must pay half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, 20 geras to the shekel. This half shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Each man who is registered 20 years old or more must give a contribution to the Lord. The wealthy may not give more, the poor may not give less than half a shekel when giving the contribution to the Lord to atone for your lives. Take the atonement price from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will serve as a reminder for the Israelites before the Lord to atone for your lives. So if you were to take a census, there was a real specific reason for it. It was to really be a great way to remind them, where does your strength come from? Who provides for you? Who is ultimately your king, right? Who is ultimately your ruler? And that is God. And so David, when he takes a census, does not follow these instructions at all. His motive is not for this at all. His motive is very clearly one of pride and insecurity. And, and so this is a great example of why this is a serious issue, because right there in God's instructions. Okay. Um, all right. Let's go ahead and keep reading. Second, we're going to look at 2 Samuel now, verse, chapter 24, verse 30. Uh, sorry, verse 10. 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. As we continue the narrative, David's, so after he hears the report, David's conscience troubled him. After he had taken a census of the troops, he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. Now, I want us to kind of think back and really contrast this. What is, the different, what is different about David's conviction here compared to the Bathsheba incident? What's the difference here? There's a real key, his response to his guilt, what prompts it? What's the difference in prompting to realization of guilt between this story, this failure of David's, and the Bathsheba incident? Anyone tell me? What? Nathan, the prophet Nathan, had to tell David that he sinned with Bathsheba, right? Someone had to convict him. Someone had to reveal this to him. Someone had to say, hey, not okay, Right? And uh, in this instance, as soon as David hears the news, it's like, like a light bulb. What have I done? Right? You know, remember, this is 15 years later. David is much older, much wiser, much more mature. He's been through a lot. I mean, he's seen his son die in horrific ways. He's seen horrific things happen to his family. He's had to endure tremendous things and trust God through all of it. His conscience is that much more honed at this point. The significance difference. And so in, in the Bathsheba instance, Nathan has to convict him. In this one, right away, he understands what he did was wrong. Let's continue reading in the Chronicles version of the story in chapter 21, verses 9 through 13. Let's see. Verses 9 through 13, we're going to continue reading there. And here we go. David's punishment. Then the Lord instructed Gad, David's seer, go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I am offering you three choices. Choose one of them for yourself and I will do it to you. And we're going to continue reading through, yeah, 13. Okay, so Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice, three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes with the sword of your enemy overtaking you or... Three days of the sword of the Lord, a plague on the land, the, the angel of the Lord bringing destruction to the whole territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I should take back to, uh, back to the one who sent me. David answered Gad, I am in anguish. Please let me fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great, but don't let me fall into human hands. It is clear clear indication, David knows God's heart. He knows who is the king of mercy. Um, but you'll look and see, there's, there's a little bit of a difference if you look back, flip to the, the second Samuel version of this account. There's not quite as many details in here. When you look at, um, let's see, look at verse... Uh, where he gives them the options in verse 13. Do you want three years of famine to come on your land? And then the way it describes your enemies 
taking to you is very brief. It says to flee from your foes for three months while they pursue you. And that's it. And then how the way it describes the plague is even more less descriptive. It says, or to have a plague in your land for three days. It just says a plague. Whereas in the Chronicles version, it gets clear attribution to the angel of the Lord being the one who is bringing the plague. It gives a source to it. So if you were to just read the Second Samuel version, you go, okay, well, of those three, why would a plague be something that's direct divine intervention, right? You, you wouldn't understand that because we, when we think of plagues, we think of germs, right? We think, okay, this is germs. It's a natural phenomenon. Maybe God starts it, what have you, but ultimately it's not like God's hand is specifically causing this, whereas David is very implicit. says, I would rather be in God's hands for the punishment than in the hands of men, right? And so when we look at this parallel passage in First Chronicles, we go, oh, okay. So that's why David was very, was like quick to choose. Hey, plague, please. Option number three, right? And definitely not D, all of the above, right? It's like if you don't know what the answer is on the test, you're like, I don't know. I'm going to go with D, all the above, or the, whichever answer hasn't been used in a while. Um, that was always my solution on a test. Okay, if I don't know the answer, which one hasn't been used in a while, right? Um, and in many ways, this is kind of a test for David, right? God is allowing him to go through this. He's allowing him to be tempted to see how he responds. Yes, he failed in taking it, but his response afterwards is that contrition of heart, right? And so he chooses that, and the, the second, the Chronicles account is a lot more helpful for us to it. And it refers to it as the angel of the Lord, okay, as the bringer of the plague. This is key. The angel of the Lord is really kind of a unique descriptor. Okay, and we're going to look at it a little bit more as we continue reading in 1 Chronicles 21, 14 through 7. So let's pick up in verse 14 in, uh, in 1 Chronicles. So the Lord sent the plague on Israel, and 70,000 Israelite men died. Then God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But when the angel was about to destroy the city, the Lord looked relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand now. The angel Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Uh, when David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem, David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. David said to God, wasn't I the one who gave the order to count the people? I am the one who has sinned and I'm the one that has acted very wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and against my father's family, but don't let the plague be against your people. Amazing response from David. But just imagine being there and looking up in the sky and seeing the angel of the Lord, drawn sword, inflicting this plague across the land between heaven and earth. What a sight to see. Now, John, you had a question. Yes. The seven years? All right. Well, see, you found a discrepancy that I didn't even notice. So John said, hey, in one account, it's in First Chronicles, it says seven years? Three years. And in Samuel, it says seven years of famine. Okay? Um, how to explain the discrepancy in time? I have not studied that yet. So I, if you want to do some digging on that, John, you're more welcome to do it, but I'm sure there's a good explanation for it. As, as most of these cases are. But regardless, like the plague stopped pretty quickly, right? Um, let's continue. And sorry, I don't have a good answer for that. You know, this is one of these complicated, this is why this is complicated to, to read because you had to go back and forth these two passages and sometimes there's some differences you don't catch. You know, but they complement each other. They help us understand it a little bit better. All right. Um, so what does David's choice reveal about his view of God? What does David's choice reveal about God that he chooses option number three, the plague? Yeah. He believes in a God that's not just just, but he believes in a God that's also merciful. He knows God's going to do the right thing every time. But he also knows that God will also show mercy, right? He knows God's heart. And sometimes it's too easy for us to focus on maybe just God's just justice, right? Like the book of Job really focuses on God's justice. God, why don't you always make things right? Why don't you treat every wrong deed with justice? 
right? forgetting God's mercy or the complexities of life, um, that God is in control of those things. Um, who is the angel of the Lord? That's one of the questions we have here. Is this just a regular angel? He's not given a name. He's just called the, the angel of the Lord. And we have multiple references in the Old Testament to the angel of the Lord. There's, there's a big difference between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. If you look at all those references that are listed there in Genesis and Exodus and Judges, these are references to the angel of the Lord, that specific reference, that sort of uh, definitive, the, really distinguishes it from other angelic appearances. A lot of people think there's a good indication that this is either a Christophany, in other words, this is the pre-incarnate Christ appearing. You know, I mean, if Jesus is God of flesh on, when God appears of flesh on in the Old Testament, it stands a reason that it is the pre-incarnate Christ, right? Either that or it's a theophany. It is the physical manifestation of God appearing in human form to interact with. You know, think about Abraham. God had breakfast with God, it says. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, and so we have these stories in the Old Testament. So the angel of the Lord, it very well could be a Christophany. It could be the pre-incarnate Christ bringing forth this judgment. Uh, and, but we don't know for certain, but it is probably one of the best explanations for this. Now, what is different or expanded upon regarding the angel of the Lord's actions? Well, in the, in the Samuel version, it does not describe the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with his sword drawn. It's, the Chronicles version is a lot more descriptive. You realize that the plague stops, but the angel is still hovering there. As the story continues, the angel is still there. He hasn't left. And in Samuel, you don't really get that indication. You don't really realize that there's an angel present who is was bringing this destruction, but he has paused until David goes to the threshing floor, as you see, to make a sacrifice and to purchase the land, okay? And so while this is going on, it's very immediate. The, the angel's there, you know? So you think that's pretty daunting. There's a sense of urgency that's missing from the Samuel passage. And so it's a very critical piece of information and understanding just how the story is progressing and so what's cool, though, is how does David's plea really parallel the cross? How does David's plea parallel the cross? I mean, look, look what he says. He says, wasn't I the one who gave the order to count the people? I am the one who has sinned and very wickedly put the, but these sheep, what have they done? Lord, my God, please let your hand be against me, against my father's family, but don't let the plague be against your people. How does this kind of remind us of the cross in some ways? Jesus took the entire punishment on himself. He said, don't let the sheep be harmed. Take, put it all on me. Put all your full wrath on me. And so we know that David is sort of a, a type of Jesus, sort of foreshadowing the true king, right? The, the perfect king. And so we see this sort of this foreshadowing here, what Jesus would do on the cross. And this gets even more interesting too as we look at the location. So let's keep, uh, let's keep reading in First Chronicles 21, verse 18 through 28. First Chronicles 21, 18 through 28. Try and go through this quickly. So the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. They went up at Gad's command, spoken in the name of the Lord. Ornan the threshing, Ornan was threshing wheat when he turned and saw the angel. His four, you can imagine threshing wheat all of a sudden. Whoa! This huge angel up there. You know, getting this plague going, it had been pretty daunting. His four sons were with him. David came to Ornan. When Ornan looked and saw David, he left the threshing floor and bowed to David with his face to the ground. I mean, he's the king of Israel after all, right? Then David said to Ornan, Give me this threshing floor plot so that I may build an altar to the Lord on it. Give it to me for the full price so the plague on the people may be stopped. Now remember, the plague is, is paused. This whole time the angel's hovering there, it's just unpaused. Ornan, and Ornan could look up and see, yeah, I see the angel. It's right there. Ornan said to David, take it. My lord, the king, do whatever he wants. See, I give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. I mean, you got to imagine, he's like panicking too. He's looking up. He sees the same angel. Like, hey, here, take it, take it, go. Come on, sacrifice this stuff. Let's get this done, you know? And King David answered Ornan, no, I'm, I insist on paying the full price. I mean, I don't know if this is a, a bit of a leap. When I, when I read this, I think of Jesus paid it all, right? 
the full price, the full amount. He insists, I want to pay the full price, for I will not take for the Lord what belongs to you or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He understands it can't be a sacrifice unless it costs me something. I can't go before God seeking forgiveness unless it costs me something. Of course, we know that Jesus paid that cost for us, and he paid it in full. So David gave Ornan 15 pounds of gold for the plot. He built an altar to the Lord, and there were the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and answered him from, with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. This is pretty cool that God actually answers with fire, right? this idea of completely consuming the offering. Why does that sound familiar? Elijah, right? I mean, this, the story of Elijah doesn't happen until later, but now we see some precedent here, right? And so God answering his fire, and fire in many ways represents purity, right? God is consuming it all, making it right, burning it up, and showing, hey, your sins are forgiven. A very dramatic moment. Then, this is really key, because the second Samuel passage does not include this. Then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. Why is that significant? Why is it well, we kind of talked about why it's important for David that sacrifice cost him something. Why is it significant that the angel sheathed his sword? What's the significance of that? The over. It's done, right? The battle is over. I mean, you don't put your sword away until, hey, you know it's safe, until you're done doing what you need to do. And so the angel's been hovering the whole time, ready to keep going if God gives him the word, right? And David's looking up, fire from heaven, and God gives the word and puts the sword away. Okay? Yeah. And the, the thing it reminds you of, as you've been saying each time, it reminds you of when Jesus, this time, when Jesus said, it is finished. Yeah, it is done. Jesus said, it is finished. What he accomplished on the cross was done. And what's interesting about this too, this is a very, if this is a, a Christophany, it's a very different picture of Jesus that we see in the New Testament. But it's the Jesus we see in Revelations, right? <laughs> it's the Jesus we see coming back in the second coming, the full force of God's judgment. And so we see this foreshadowing here in many ways. It's really quite significant. I'm probably getting ahead of my notes a little bit, but hey, it's there. Um, but now that the judgment is over. Now, what is the significance of the location where God has halted his judgment? This threshing floor of Aruna. Anyone know what the significance is of this location? The temple was later built there. So David purchased that land and later builds a temple on that spot. And what's fascinating about this particular spot of land was this is also known as Mount Moriah. And this is where Abraham was told to sacrifice his son. Where right before he was about to sacrifice his son, God provided a substitute. And it's also, some people even think this may be the same mountain that Melchizedek would have made his offerings. He lived in the city of Salem, which was Jerusalem before it became, you know, Salem was where Jerusalem was built. So many people think this is where Melchizedek, the great high priest that is mentioned, only has like three or four verses in the Old Testament, which is crazy, but it gets a lot of play in Hebrews. This is where he would have offered his sacrifices in the same place. What's even more interesting is that this is the same set of hills where Jesus himself died. The very close proximity is Jesus would have died in the same set of hills, being the ultimate sacrifice for us. So a lot of significance here. Um, the threshing floor also is kind of interesting in and of itself because we have, you know, Jesus talks about the separating the wheat from the chaff. You know, those who will be with God and those who are not, and those who are the chaff will get burned up. And so we have this picture of judgment here, the threshing floor. Uh, you can look at that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, good reference to kind of look at that. Also, we kind of talked about how this points to the future judgment of Christ's return, right? When Jesus comes back a second time, it's not going to be as a cute little baby. It's going to be the conquering king. It's going to be triumphant. It's going to be very, very forceful. And we get a slight picture of that here in many ways. So in closing, hey, we might get done before 7 tonight. Hey, hey, hey. I get a bonus for that? I don't know. Um, in closing, 
this is a very unique story. But I want you all to tell, there's a couple of takeaways I want us to have. One, when we read these passages in the Old Testament, if there's a parallel passage or cross-references, utilize them, right? Utilize those cross-references. If it seems confusing, well, hey, is there another passage that parallels this? Are there other books in the Bible that, that utilize that? And you're, a lot of times your Bibles will include little notes and cross-references that you can, you can kind of employ. Uh, because if we didn't do that today, this story gets very, very confusing, right? Um, but there's some great application. that The story gets even more rich as we read through it. And then closing thought, just in terms of just purely just devotional. When we realize our sin, let's place ourselves fully at the mercy of God. Let's not get, tr- in the, let's not get into the obedience trap of, I need to curry God's favor. I need to obey my own strength. Let's pursue God. Let's obey Him. Let's pursue Him. Rely on the Holy Spirit, but recognize that when we mess up, not to justify our own sins or give excuses for ourselves, but to lay fully at the mercy of God's feet. The one thing that David did not do is give an excuse for his choice. He just owned it. He didn't say, well, God, I thought it was a good idea to take a sense. You know, it'd be good to know how strong we are. Or he doesn't try to barter with God or reason with him. He doesn't try to say, hey, this is my thoughts for it. It was, you know, there's some rationale to it. Or maybe it'd be a good idea. I just want to take care of the sheep you entrusted to me. I can't take care of them unless I know how many there are and what we're dealing with. I mean, he could have reasoned his way through this, but he doesn't. It's like I tell my kids, apologies don't come with buts. Apologies don't come with buts. I'm so sorry, but you shouldn't have done this. Or I'm so sorry, but this is kind of what I was thinking and this is why I did it. No. When we go before God, let's just own it. (laughs) Just like David did. And just lay ourselves fully at his mercy and not try to rationalize it or make our sin seem prettier than it really is. And I'll close with this one thought because this really, I hadn't thought about this when I was preparing, but it really just, I feel like God just kind of put it on my, my brain right now. When I was a senior in high school, I remember this one devotion, this guy sharing this. He said, listen, and he used this illustration, says, and he was Canadian, so forgive the Canadian terminology. The, the rubbish that doesn't stink still goes out with the trash. You know, just because it doesn't smell bad or because society, you know, you know we're kind of, it's a cozy sin or things that we don't like to shed a whole lot of shade on, doesn't mean it doesn't stink. Doesn't mean it's still not trash, Right? Let's be like David. When we know we've sinned, call it what it is and own it, but lay ourselves fully at his mercy. So let me uh, close out in prayer and we'll be done. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and how you've shown us a better way to live. Not just from a pragmatic standpoint, but from a point of how you've designed us. Lord, we have, we've fallen short in many ways. We've chosen active rebellion against you. We confess this to you. We've questioned your right way of doing things and done our own thing. We've acted in pride and insecurity like David has. But God, we want to confess, we want to commit to you right now that when we do this, when we fall short, that we trust in the cross. You finished the work. We can't be righteous, but you have done that for us. It costs you greatly, and may that inspire us to even more good works, to pursue you even more heartily. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.